Hello and welcome to Travels in the Mathematical World, a podcast from the Institute of Mathematics and its Applications, the IMA. My name's Peter Oller and this is episode one. One is, of course, the multiplicative identity. Okay, this week we're going to hear from Professor Philip K. Maney, who is Director of the Centre for Mathematical Biology at the University of Oxford and a Fellow of the IMA, and he's going to tell us something about mathematical biology. Mathematical biology is an area that has got a lot of uh, impetus recently and a lot of um, uh, publicity, but it's actually an area that's been going on for a very, very long time. And I think when people think of mathematical biology now, they think more of systems biology and network analysis. So you've got genes interacting with each other or proteins interacting with each other and you've got these huge graphs and you've got to try and figure out given all these interactions, what is the outcome? Mm. And why does it work? Because these graphs are so complicated that you've got to ask the question, well, suppose one of those links wasn't present Mm. in the graph, then would we get a different result? Mm. And this is the whole idea of of robustness. How do these um, networks exhibit robustness so that you can break many of the links, certain links can't work, and still the, the system as a whole works. Yeah. So it's really that biological function arises out of integration of processes rather than one gene, one process, which is now an outdated mode of thinking that yeah. biologists used to have. And as one of my colleagues puts it, you know, we've taken Humpty Dumpty apart, now we've got to try and put Humpty Dumpty back together again. So really mathematical biology is how do processes integrate in order to give function. So the integration may be that you've got, uh, you generate um, a network of nodes, which are maybe genes or maybe proteins. You've got connections between those nodes, which could be that A upregulates B or A inhibits B. So then you've got this huge graph and you've got to figure out, well, if I now um, manipulate one of these processes, like maybe I inhibit A, what happens to Z at the end of this huge interaction network? And that requires ideas from statistical physics, it requires ideas from topology and from graph theory. Mm. And then if you go up to a higher level, you can ask the question that if you've got many, many molecules interacting with each other, so you can write down ordinary differential equations or partial differential equations, what types of um, interactions can you get? How do you, again, take all these processes, how do they interact, and what behaviours come out of this? One of the best-known examples of this is the Turing model for biological pattern formation. So this is not very well known that Turing was became very interested late in his life in biological pattern formation. So how, for example, do the spots and stripes arrive, uh, arise in animals. Right. And what he showed mathematically was you could take a system of chemicals that are interact in a certain way that they give rise to a stable equilibrium. Right. And then if you assume that they diffuse, now we all know that diffusion is a stabilising process. So you've got a system that's reacting in, in a way that's stabilizing, you add on to it another stabilizing process, you would expect that what you should get is something that's much more stable. 
And what he showed was you would get an instability. So two stabilizing processes could interact and form an instability. And this is called diffusion-driven instability or um, emergent pattern formation. Um, And that's just one example of how you can take processes that separately behave in a certain way, but when you integrate them, they behave in different way and the difference is coming because of the integration. And one of the questions then is, how much data do you need to know in order to start modelling? And there's a very nice example of this where uh, a few years ago, some people were looking, as a very, very problem that's been around for a long time, is how do you get patterns of gene expression in Drosophila? And these mathematicians, they took a network diagram that the biologists had put together, but had not parameterized. So basically it was very qualitative. It was, um, we know that A upregulates B or A inhibits B, but we don't know what the strength is. And they had this huge parameter space, so they literally did millions and millions of simulations. And they found that not one of them gave the right answer. So then what they did was they put in two more links that had been tentatively proposed by the biologists. And they found that no matter what parameter value they took, they got the right answer all the time. And then some other people did some work using Boolean methods on this. And what they concluded was it was the topology of the network, the connectivity of the network, that gave rise to the patterning process, not the parameter values. So here is a situation that had biologists spent a huge amount of time and a huge amount of money trying to come up with parameter values. That actually would have been totally irrelevant to the question they were trying to answer. And now people are applying, uh, now that there's been a huge increase in um, computing power, people are doing things like, for instance, here in Oxford, they model the whole heart. So the idea here is what we want to know is that if you give a drug to someone and most drugs work at the ionic channel level, maybe change its permeability or something, what happens at the level of the heart, at the electrical activity on the organ? Um, So what you can do there is if you could figure out how to reduce the number of experiments, even by 1% in the formal in the pharmacological industry, you'd save millions and millions of pounds. And likewise, people have been doing a lot of work on cancer modelling, modelling the tissue dynamics of cancer, as well as modelling also the genetic levels of cancer. So how come, you know, how do you get mutations? How many mutations do you need in order for a tissue to become cancerous? But another question is, uh, if you've got a, a tissue that's been mutated, how does it behave? And how at the tissue level can you control it? Mm. So what you can do is use mathematics and mathematical modelling to try out different strategies um, which don't cost any money for you to do, whereas if you were to do them experimentally, Mm. it would cost a huge amount of money. So there are lots of potentially very important uses of mathematics in the medical uh, examples. Mm as well as basic science, understanding basic 
basic problems like in developmental biology. You know, why? How come we've got you know five fingers? How come we've got two arms? Mm. Um, how come that our arms, both arms, grow to the same length? Mm. What sort of? Uh, okay, the genes will be coding some of that, but what they will do is that they will code things like um, what should the cell produce, what biochemistry should the cell undergo, what is its physical properties, but it won't tell you the outcome of those physical properties. Uh, and that's what the mathematical modelling does at the, at the sort of higher scale level, is to try and sort out how these things interact with each other. Um, so in that respect, there's lots of, lots of opportunities for mathematicians in the area, ranging from doing statistical analysis, stochastic analysis, up to deterministic ODEs, PDEs, graph theory, um, Boolean networks, Boolean algebra, um, also a lot of you know, computational aspects of, of things. Okay, I hope that was interesting. My name is Peter Rollins. I'm University Liaison Officer for the Institute of Mathematics and its Applications, the IMA. You can find out more about my work with the IMA and get a link to show notes for the podcast with further information at www.travelsinamathematicalworld.co.uk. Thank you for listening.